STIs are super duper normal, much like chicken pox or strep throat or that sinus infection that I had a couple weeks ago. All of that, uh-huh. it happens. Most people will acquire at least one strain of HPV in their lifetime. If you're like me, you had at least two. And 50 to 90% of people carry a strain of herpes. And 1.5 million cases of chlamydia are in the U.S. every single year. So the majority of people with STIs, they don't have symptoms. They can pass it to others. But all STIs are treatable, meaning there is some kind of medical intervention to improve symptoms or possibly keep it under control completely. Welcome to the Multi-Amory Podcast. I'm Jace. I'm Emily. And I'm Dedeker. We believe in looking to the future of relationships, not maintaining the status quo of the past. So whether you're monogamous, polyamorous, swinging, casually dating, or if you just do relationships differently, we see you and we're here for you. On this episode of the Multi-Amory Podcast, we're covering part one of a two-part series on sexual health. Over the course of these two episodes, we're going to cover a lot of information, but do it in a way that's practical, informative, and maybe even fun. In this first episode, we're going to be talking about STIs, STDs, and how we can have better, more informed conversations that help reduce stigma and to help keep us and others healthy, both physically and mentally, when it comes to sexual health. And then in part two, we're going to get a little bit more personal and explore a more personal connection to sexual wellness, discussing options available for practicing safer sex, understanding what your options even are there, which is much more than just condoms or abstinence. We're also going to cover examples of how to have more effective safer sex talks with your partners, as well as some tips for making those conversations easier. It's been several years since we've covered this topic, and I'm really excited to take the time to do these two episodes on it. Yeah, I do think sometimes, Jace, you joke about making the multi-amory lectionary like the Catholic <laughs> Church follows sometimes, uh, like the cycle of the okay. year where we know exactly what topic we're going to hit at what time of year. And sexual health does feel like one that should come back once mm-hmm. a year or so. Just as a good this refresher. Your annual, exactly. Yeah. Your annual exam, your annual refresher, your something annual along those lines. Sexual health podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. And this is, this is also a subject that's been requested quite a bit, specifically requests to kind of get into more of the specifics of like, yeah, it's all well and good to say you should talk about it, but how do you talk about it? And it's all well and good to say inform yourself, but like, what is some information that we should know to start out? So that's kind of the idea here is to to answer those requests by doing this kind of bigger dive into the subject. Of course, we need to start out with a disclaimer that we ain't doctors. Not yet, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so the information that we're covering this episode has been compiled from a lot of different medical sources. We've worked to put together the most relevant information, the most important information. But of course, we did not do the original research ourselves. We're not qualified to give personalized medical advice. And our resources about availability of testing and drug approval or test approval is based on the situation in the U.S. It may be different in your country, wherever you are. So 
Of course, use this as a starting point. Always ask your doctor, hopefully find a good doctor that you trust. Do your research before making any major decisions about your health. But short of that, we're not your doctor, but we can be your friend. We can be your cool friend. We'll hold your hand. To talk about sex and sex stuff. Yeah. I feel like we just keep sounding like an after school program. (laughs) 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 This is a part of sex stuff, but that's the thing is that after school programs, I think in general, would try to make all of this stuff really fear based. And we're here to sort of like move away from that to just kind of be information based, hopefully, and reduce some stigma around a lot of these things. Because I think there's stigma, there's fear, there's all of that stuff. Misunderstanding, a lot of misinformation, assumptions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think we like to bring ourselves to this topic from a place of sex neutrality, let's say, sure. and body neutrality, right. you know, just really looking at the fact that all of our bodies have an ecosystem of bacteria and pathogens. And when we put our bodies next to other bodies, whether that's sexually or not, sometimes those ecosystems affect each other. And yes. that's all it is. That's really all it is. So let's start out with some terms and clarifications. And the first big one is the difference between an STD and an STI, because probably a lot of you out there hear both terms floating around in the abyss. And it's like, wait, which one is it? Do I call this an STD? Do I call this an STI? I'll I think be frank. One is, yes. I thought that STD was what we called it before mm, 2011 or so. No, and truly. STI is what we I called it since you. then. I thought that yeah. was really the only difference. It felt like STD was more, I guess, like a negative term. And STI is sort of not glossing it over, but making it a little bit more neatly packaged, perhaps, or just nicely er packaged. Well, but as it turns perhaps. out, there's a much more neutral take on the difference. Yes. So, okay, here it is. Any sexually transmitted infection is an STI. So pathogens enter the body and they multiply. That just happens if you get sick, you know, in a variety of ways. Yeah. Exactly. That's That's an infection. So it only becomes an STD If the infection becomes a disease, which happens when pathogens disrupt normal body function or damage structures in the body. So just so you all out there are aware, some STIs may never develop into diseases. And for example, most HPV cases go away on their own without causing health problems. For example, a pap smear, you might find an irregularity. And then, you know, your doctor tells you, okay, six months later, let's come back and do another pap smear. And then all of a sudden, it's a normal pap the next time. So then it goes away. In these instances, the HPV is an STI. But then if the HPV infection develops into genital warts or cervical cancer, then it is considered an STD. So basically just the infection is all of them and they could become a disease. All right, next one that we wanted to cover is the term safe sex and safer sex. And it's funny because this is one of those ones where safe sex is what we talked about all the time. And then like we thought happened with STD to STI, there was this thing of like, oh, suddenly you can't say safe sex anymore. You have to say safer sex. Hmm. And what's funny to me about it is that the idea behind it is just to imply that there's no such thing as 100% safe sex. So it's safer sex. It's safer than other ways of doing sex. It's emphasizing that it's on a spectrum. 
But what's funny to me is it's like we used to have safe sex, but now we have safer <laughs> sex. It's even and then more. Well, Pokemon more safest sex. Exactly. I yeah. you. Abstinence, I'm assuming. <laughs> I guess. So basically, that's the whole point of safer sex is just any step that we might take to lower our risk of STIs and things like pregnancy, any sort of unwanted consequences from the sex that we're having. Anything we do to reduce that risk makes it a little bit safer than it was before doing that. The point is it's on a spectrum. It's not like if you do X, then it is safe. And if you don't, then it's not. It's all a whole bunch of different choices. And that's what we're going to get into in the next episode a lot when we look at specifically what some of those choices are. Uh, side note here, when we talk about sex, there is such an emphasis everywhere of this whole thing of like, there is no such thing as safe sex. It's always a risk, whatever. That's absolutely true, and I think that's important for people to realize. Yet, at the same time, what if we treated driving a car in the same way? Mm. Every DMV in the world would have to have signs up everywhere. It's like, there's no such thing as safe driving. And according to the U.S. Center for Disease Control and Prevention and the U.S. National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, they reported that you are 20 times more likely to die on a car trip than you are to die from being infected with HIV. It's like, it, it. we take risks every day. And that's something we're going to come back to through this and the next episode a lot, is that it's all about what's your level of comfort with certain types of risks. And of course, being safer is always great. But also, let's keep it in perspective and not do this sort of sensational, like, sex is the most dangerous thing you can do, because it's not. What if it's Definitely dangerous not. for your heart, though, Jace? I mean, sure. That's... <laughs> That's fair. For your heart? That's oh, fair. you mean like As from my emotional Christian level? culture upbringing told me. Oh, okay. <laughs> you know what, can't though? protect your heart. Okay. Seeing, seeing what road rage does to people, I would say driving is also okay. dangerous sure, for your sure. heart. Sure, yeah. sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I guess, yeah, the other thing to bear in mind is just that also as human beings, we're really bad at objectively assessing risk as well. Yeah, it's true. Hence why there's so many people that have an extreme phobia of flying versus getting in a car when getting in a car is... So much more likely. Way to, more dangerous. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Okay. And so let's back it up even further and zoom out even further. Just what is an infection? And this speaks a little bit to the ecosystem metaphor that I laid out that infections are a super common thing in human beings in general. Our immune system does its best to protect us, but it's also not perfect. And so STIs, they're just a term for any kind of viral, bacterial, or other kind of infection that tend to be transmitted through the exchange of bodily fluids. However, there are some STIs that can be contracted through non-sexual situations. And also, it's possible to get an infection from something like a common cold virus, but it gets infected somewhere in your genitals, like in your urethra, that can seem like an STI because your genitals are involved, but maybe it's not actually what we tend to count as an STI. Hmm. So now we're going to move on to sort of a broader understanding of STIs in general. And this is not a comprehensive list, but it covers most of the STIs that people are concerned with and probably covers more than you find in most resources out there, maybe more than you found in your high school sex ed class, for example. And we're not going to show so. you a bunch of scary pictures. Instead, we're just going to try to present these facts, you know, in a, in a neutral fashion so let's start out with the most common one, which is HPV, human papillomavirus. So the most common STI is HPV, and an estimated 90% of people are infected with it at some point in their life. 
I have been yep, I've off. been infected yeah, twice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, I mean, I just want to say, like, initially the first time that I had it, I did freak out. Chase, you yeah, were there. I was and there. Yeah. I like lost my mind. And I think that is just a testament to how much stigma we have about something that 90% of people literally might get in their lifetime. And yet mm-hmm. it causes such emotional strife, I think, to people because they're just simply uninformed about it. So listen, there's no tests out there to really determine HPV status, but there's only tests to screen for related cervical cancer in women over 30 or by doing a biopsy on a ward. So for me, for example, both times that I had a pap smear and my OBGYN told me, okay, you have a um, not a normal pap smear. So I went in, I did a biopsy on the irregularities in my cervix. And then six months later, both times it went away. And that was it. And the biopsy was no big deal. It really wasn't. And it was chill. So that's what happened. And there are many, many different strains of this, many of which have no symptoms. And then some strains, yes, are linked to certain types of cancer. Yeah. And then some other strains can cause genital warts, which I think when most people think of HPV, they think of genital warts. Like that's the image that comes to mind. Mm -hmm. And it's just the fact that it's actually a virus that usually doesn't have any symptoms at all, but yeah. might have warts. And again, like Emily said, a lot of times just clears up on its own. It's also possible that you might have it for years and not have symptoms until several years afterward. So it's also hard to pin down. It's not like, oh, I got them now, so therefore it's these people's fault. It's, yeah. it's really very hard to... Unfortunately, I have that. seen a lot of that, of people being very, very angry with someone because, oh, it's clear, clearly this person gave me HPV when you unfortunately really have no there, idea. there isn't really a definitive way to be able to prove that. Yeah. So just know that. Yeah. There is no cure for it or treatment, but it tends to be fairly harmless. The main concern is that there are some cancers that have been linked to it. And so... Avoiding it could help decrease your risk of developing some of those cancers. And toward that, the good news is that there is a vaccine. So there's a vaccine that protects against a few different strains of HPV. Again, there's tons of them. It protects against a few of them and specifically protects against the biggest ones that have been linked to both cancer and to genital warts. The ones that have some sort of adverse symptom that are more likely to become an STD and not just an STI. It's generally only given to people under the age of 26, but you may be able to get it up to the age of 45 if you talk to your doctor about the the risks in your situation and they decide that it would be okay for you to get it. And since 2006, when they introduced that vaccine, overall HPV rates have decreased significantly because that's how vaccines work. They help us eliminate mm-hmm. viruses, not just not get them, but big picture, they help everybody. Woo. Amen. Okay. So then the next one that we're going to talk about is HSV. And I think this confuses a lot of people because they hear HPV and they hear HSV and they go, it's letters with an H and a V. I don't know. Or is that <laughs> the same thing? And HIV also gets roped in there sometimes mm-hmm. as well. Yeah, absolutely. So HPV is the human papillomavirus, like Emily said. HSV is the herpes simplex virus also just called herpes. I've actually noticed for a while there was this move where I noticed a lot of people talking about it as HSV. 
to try to move away from the stigma that's associated with the word herpes. Right, because the word herpes has now become a punchline of a joke in so many contexts. Yeah. Absolutely. Just watched an but, office episode where oh, all the time. Was, yeah. Uh, which really made me cringe. Yeah. Yeah, no, yeah. still to this day. It's just like constantly like it's still yeah. low hanging fruit of very a much. joke for people. And now that I've done so much more reading and had so much more, I guess, experience with real living people with yeah. HSV and just how many people there are, I'm just like, how do you do that? Because it, like it means that literally you tell that joke and it's like someone in the writer's room or someone who is an actor, like someone has it. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think it Absolutely. is just the epidemic of silence and shame and stigma around it that means that we all get to believe that, oh, it's only a tiny fraction of people who have this bad infection, but yeah, I'm okay. So right. we can make jokes about it. Yeah, absolutely. What I've noticed, though, in researching for this episode is that actually I noticed a lot of sources using the word herpes, I think, hmm. to try to do the opposite of instead kind of leaning Reclaiming. into. Yeah. Let's make awareness about this word and say it enough that it's not just this punchline, that the right. only time you hear this word is not in that misinformed context. So some fun facts about herpes simplex virus. One is that it's actually a pretty closely related virus to chickenpox and mono, to mononucleosis. And also shingles. That's mm. my and virus of choice. That's yes, living, that's taking that up residence in my body. Yeah. What's funny about this too is just that chickenpox and mono are things that a lot of us have had. I've had both of them. And it's just sort of like, yeah, kind of a part of life. There's not a lot of shame involved in either of those. And yet we do put shame on this other really closely related virus that actually works in very much the same way. Hmm. So that's kind of interesting. It's transmitted by contact. So that includes kissing or other kinds of touch potentially. There's two different strains, and you may have heard this. There's HSV-1 and HSV-2. And some people will talk about HSV-1 as like the harmless one and HSV-2 as the bad one. And really, they're not. They're just two different strains of the same virus. One of the main differences is that HSV-1 is more often found in oral herpes. That's something about some of these viruses is that they will infect a particular set of nerves in your body is kind of how they work. And so they'll be localized to a part of your body rather than something like chickenpox where it's like all over your body reacts mm. all at the same time. You can get localized chickenpox or things like that, but just, just interesting thing about it. So HSV-1 is generally found in oral herpes, but it can also be genital as well. It can be either of those. And Around 60% of the population have it and most never know it. So again, just like we were talking about with HPV, where it's just like basically everyone has it. With this, not as much, but still 60%. So that thing, Emily, you know, and Dedeker, you were talking about, like someone in that writer's room, someone yeah. on the cast, someone on the crew, and a whole bunch of someone's in your audience all have the potential to be made feel really shitty by that totally. joke. By that comment. And because there's so much shame, they're not going to speak up because then everyone's going to think they're this dirty, awful person. But it's not. It's just, just like having chicken pox or mono. HSV2, on the other hand, is pretty much only found in genital herpes. And that could also be your anus or things like that, but generally is only found there. So people tend to associate one with one and one with the other, but they technically both could be infected in different parts of the body. Most often, both strains have no symptoms at all. Or maybe you'll have one outbreak shortly after being infected and then never have one again in your life. Or they might be recurring. 
again, it's not this doom and gloom thing all of the time. The symptoms of it, it includes an outbreak, which it starts as like a tingling sensation around the area, whether that's your lips or, or genitals or maybe your, your thighs even. And then they can lead to like little sores or blisters and last generally two to seven days when you have an outbreak. And so when you're having an outbreak, you're more likely to spread it. It can spread even if you're not having an outbreak, but it's a lot less likely. I, I feel the need to jump in just for a couple of things. We didn't do a deep dive on this in particular in this episode, but there's a lot of resources out there that explain the link between HSV not being really a big deal until it became a marketing <laughs> Oh, a point of, I think we a talked point about of pain for marketing. Ago, probably, yes, yeah. until there was actually a company trying to develop a treatment for it. And then they had to market it to be this terrible thing that you don't want to mm-hmm. have. This terrible, right. awful, dirty, this shameful, filthy, thing. shameful yeah. thing so that we can sell you the cure. And basically, we picked that up and ran with that and have been unfortunately suffering from the stigma ever since. There's a lot of really good podcasts and blogs out there who talk about that history. So definitely Google that. And I also just wanted to say, like speaking from personal experience of now having been in a relationship for several years with someone who has HSV2, it's to the point where, to be totally frank, I sometimes completely forget. There's a lot of people in our audience who are very out and proud about their HSV status and are very comfortable with this and other people who are not. And this is totally new. But I think that's the thing I often try to drive home for people is that this is of all the infections in the world you could be getting, this is one of the most manageable and yeah. like livable with that you mm-hmm. could get, which is like yeah. the polar opposite of how it's often pitched to us. It is pitched to us as your dating life is over, your sex life is over, your romantic relationships are always going to be affected. And that's not true. I've also found I've dated several different people with HSV one or two. And all of them have been very conscientious about it too. They're like, Hmm. I know what it feels like if I'm going to have an outbreak and then I take medication to make that go away, but just we won't do stuff during that time. It's just being responsible about it. I've just had nothing but good experiences with people as long as they know that. like They've done their research and they've learned about it. And I know that's emotionally hard and we've talked about that too. It's, It's hard to accept that fact. And we'll talk about this a little bit later with testing as well. Yeah, and speaking of all that, just treatments out there do exist and they can keep the outbreaks to a minimum or even eliminate them. So you can talk to your doctor about the pros and cons of medical treatment based on your experience. And the CDC does not recommend testing for people without symptoms because there's a really high rate of false positives in tests. Also, studies have not shown that diagnosis increase barrier usage, so it doesn't really matter whether or not you're diagnosed or not. It doesn't necessarily increase usage of condoms, for example. And they say the harm of a possible false positive test may be a greater concern than the benefits of an actual diagnosis. That's really interesting. You can get tested if you want to. You just need to convince your doctor of that. And your doctor yeah. will probably fight you on it. You'd be like, probably no. try to convince you not to get tested for hmm. it. And I mean, I, based on these statistics, I can understand the doctor's perspective, which the doctor probably has to deal with a lot of people having freakouts about yep. being diagnosed with HSV when the doctor knows that maybe it's not as big of a deal and they maybe would prefer to just not have to deal with that. <laughs> so I'm like, that's fair. That makes sense. 
But also, I think our party stance on the show tends to be more of like, you should probably know rather than just not know. And so we recommend you, you know, doing your best to to be polite yet assertive with your doctor for Mm -hmm. getting tested. In my experience, if you can whip out some of this information on your doctor, they're going to be more likely to give you the test because they understand that you get it. Like if you kind of come in going like, I'm, I know that I probably have at least one of them. I would just like to know because that's important to me, but I get that it's super common and mm. that will help convince them. I had to do that to convince my doctor to give me the test. And he just kept being like, mm, I don't know. I just, uh, and then finally <laughs> like, he's like, all right, fine. I'll give you the test, but what you do with it is, is up to you. And I found out that I did have antibodies for HSV1. I've never had any kind of symptoms that I know of, so I don't know where that infection might be, but did have those antibodies. So I'm one of that 60% who has mm-hmm. HSV-1 and never knew about it until I had my doctor test me. And when we got the test results back, he was like, okay, so you have antibodies for HSV-1. It's not acute, like you weren't just infected or anything, but you've had it at some point in your life and it's in your body and you don't have HSV-2 yet. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> he had a sense of humor, but yeah. it's just sort of like, <laughs> yep. It's yeah, fair. Yep. It's fair. Okay, so moving on to trichomoniasis. So trick is the most common curable STI. So this is a little protozoa. It's a little parasite. It's well, you know, again just another little animal in the ecosystem. Crawling around. crawling around, just trying to survive. It just wants to survive and have a good time, you know, and doesn't it doesn't want to suffer. Like all of us, right? This little <laughs> <laughs> trying to generate some some compassion, okay, some compassion, for the, right. some compassion yes. for the little the little guy. <laughs> At the end of the day, around. it's just trying to survive. Also, that's what yeah. all these viruses are doing, like it's a coronavirus doing the, or whatever. Doing the same rat race that all of us are doing. Indeed. <laughs> so this sweet little parasite generally infects the the genital tract in women, of the urethra in men. of people infected have no symptoms, but if you do have symptoms, that can include some inflammation, itching, redness, discharge. Generally, it can be cured with antibiotics. And this is another one that may also go away on its own, but it's likely that it could last a lot longer, might develop into a more severe infection. So it's good to get that checked out because we do care about the good, sweet little protozoa, but it may be, it just maybe would be better served elsewhere. Yeah, there's no sort of, of like catch and release program oh, for, no. No. for curing. Yeah, maybe it's I not a daddy the foot trying to trying to anthropomorphize this protozoa <laughs> right at the top. But what right. if it was a daddy long legs, Emily? It, yeah, that I gently like grab and grab then out it, of your vulva. Yeah, just like just put it outside. No, in the no, garden. no. Exactly. Go, go to your home. Yeah, I'll do that with a bug or a spider in the house, but perhaps not with this particular STI. <laughs> Speaking of other creatures, scabies and pubic lice, that's another fun one. So these are small parasitic mites that can cause irritation and infection. They're very similar to head lice, which I have had many times uh, when I was a youth. And then chiggers and fleas, and they are an actual creature rather than a virus, bacteria, or fungus. And they can last a long time without treatment. They are contagious, and they are generally easy to cure and often doesn't even involve prescription drugs. Yeah, a lot of times your doctor will just tell you, you know, they might prescribe it to you, but it's something you could also get over the the counter. (laughs) Well, there's like specific ones made for this, but but yeah, it's another one of those ones that's just so easy to treat 
but you've yeah. got to know. You've got to get tested to know so you can get it taken care of. I yeah. never had a lice situation well, growing up. I, I had a tick situation because I grew up oh. in the woods, running around in the woods like a feral child. So yeah. yeah, no, for me, it's when I was in like summer day camps in Iowa. Mm. It was always like you'd come home from your field trip or whatever out in With lice. the forests or the fields of grain or whatever. <laughs> And you'd Fields come back and your parents would have to <laughs> check you, for, you. For, for ticks and chiggers, yep. Yep. specifically. Uh, and you'd have to go sugar? around. And, it's kind of I like... I was going to search for it, then I was like, nope. nope. They're like little little creatures, kind of like lice that bite you, but the bite will like get red and kind of painful. Mm. I think they're sort of like lice in that they can kind of like stay stuck on you and you've got to carefully remove them. The lice so stay on the hair follicle. Or whatever. Yeah. Like ticks. Uh, like ticks. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. Okay. Like yeah, a tick. Like a tick yeah, I'm trying, okay, I will say, I'm trying really hard <laughs> to offer compassion for these living creatures that also want to live and not no, die they and not suffer. Away. And also, I'm a little heebie-jeebied. Just myself Better personally. Sure. Scorpions. Just a little bit, just a little bit heebie-jeebied by the bugs. Okay. I'm trying to hold oh, both fair. of those things in my heart at once. The compassion and the heebie-jeebies. I feel that way every time there's a spider in the house and mm, I try to spiders. capture it and take it outside so I don't kill it, but I'm yeah. very freaked out and upset at the same time. Okay. So I, I understand holding <laughs> good for you. Yes. <laughs> Thank you all for right, not killing right. them. Yes. Moving on uh, to syphilis. So if you lived in Shakespeare's time, this was the Bye. butt of the joke like herpes is in our yes. time. Syphilis <laughs> right. was his one to make fun of people about. But syphilis time. could definitely kill you right back then. Yes. Well, so, so could a lot of things. So could a I lot suppose of you're right. So, so could, could a lot your of teeth. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So syphilis, compared to these other ones that we've been talking about, which are viruses or, or little creatures, this one's a bacteria. And the symptoms might show up 10 to 90 days after infection. And it could be like one or more little sores or something like that, which you might think is something else. You might be like, oh, is this herpes? Is this genital warts, I don't know. There's these things, I can't tell what it is. But it's super easy to test for, and we've very well established our testing for syphilis. It's one of the standard pack of tests when you go for your physical, if they do any kind of STI panel, this one's on it. Because if it's not treated, can be really serious. You know, this leads to neurological problems mm. and can even lead to death. But it's also very easy to cure with antibiotics. So that's why it's one of those ones they test for. Because after that initial outbreak, it kind of goes dormant for a while and you might not know. Which mm -hmm. is, again, why it's important to get tested for things regularly, even if you're not seeing symptoms, because it's easier to fix it earlier than later. So now moving on to hepatitis. There's three types of the hepatitis virus. There's A, B, and C. Most of them affect the liver there's no surefire cure that exists, but there are treatments. Both of my parents had hepatitis C, so I've so, been through this. So yeah. did mine. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so did my dad's yeah. doctor, so he got it from that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, most cases don't cause symptoms and they will resolve on their own, but it can become chronic. So it is important to have your doctor monitor your liver, look into treatments. There are vaccines for A and B. Most children in the U.S. that were born after 91 probably have already been vaccinated. And then hepatitis C is usually transmitted via blood-to-blood -blood contact, but it also can be transmitted sexually, although that is less common. And according to the CDC, over 90% of people with chronic hep C can be cured with treatment. So chlamydia and gonorrhea, they're very, very similar to each other in their symptoms and their risks. 
and more than half of people don't experience any symptoms at all. But if you do experience symptoms, then they're generally discharge, pain, burning sensation with peeing, stuff like that. It has a potential to cause more serious or permanent health problems if left uncured or untreated, but it can be cured totally with antibiotics and condoms protect very well against both of them. Yeah. And then the last one to talk about in this episode is HIV. So we mentioned that earlier with the the ones that start with H and end with V, right? So we've got HPV, human papillomavirus. We have HSV, which is the herpes simplex virus. And then HIV, which is the human immunodeficiency virus. So for more information about this, we actually did an episode 197 was totally dedicated to learning about HIV and AIDS, which is related to it. And what this is, is it's a virus that weakens the immune system, and if left untreated, develops into AIDS. And AIDS stands for Acquired Immune Deficiency Syndrome, where the immune system gets weakened to the point where it's very easy to get sick with things, and things like a common cold could become this devastating or potentially even deadly disease. And that's if it gets all the way to that point. And that's kind of where death comes from. You don't actually die from it, but from these opportunistic infections. However, today, we have really, really good treatments. There's a lot of treatments out there. And if you have HIV and you take your medication regularly and you're monitoring your levels, you can get them to the level as if it's not there at all. And that's something we're going to talk about a little more in just a second here. But another thing to know is that there are two different preventative measures besides using condoms, not sharing needles, things like that. There's two different medical prophylactics. There's PEP and PrEP. So PEP stands for post-exposure prophylaxis. And so this means after you think you may have been exposed to HIV, you start taking PEP and it will keep the virus from multiplying and taking hold. But you have to catch it early. So you need to start it within 72 hours after possibly being infected. Sooner is better. And then you continue taking it for four weeks is the whole course for that. The other one is PrEP, which is pre-exposure prophylaxis instead of post-exposure. And so this is one that if you are HIV negative, it's a pill that you can take daily that will reduce the risk of potentially being infected by HIV. It reduces your risk by more than 90%. It does require a prescription, but almost all health plans in the U.S. cover it 100%. And also many state and federal programs exist to help uninsured or underinsured people get access to it. So these are two great resources if you are potentially in a higher risk group, specifically men who have sex with men, their doctor will be more likely to advise taking PrEP, especially if they're riskier in their sexual health practices. And that's something, again, that you can talk to your doctor and evaluate that. But now to go back to the treatment part of it, if you have HIV and you know it, and you take your treatment and you maintain that, they refer to how much of the virus is in your body as your viral load. And If you're taking the treatment regularly, you can get your viral load down to where it's undetectable. So like you could take a test and it won't show any of that virus in your system if you're taking this treatment regularly. And there have been 
tons of studies now that have shown if you can get your viral load to that undetectable level, it is also untransmittable. They have literally never, ever found a case of someone who's gotten their load to that undetectable who has transmitted HIV to anyone else. Hmm. So like we kind of had that light bulb moment in episode 197, having sex with someone with HIV who's taking treatment and knows that their viral load is undetected, you have a 0% risk. With anyone else, it's who knows, because they Hmm. might not know, they might have it and not know, regardless of what protection. So again, with the whole stigma thing of like, ooh, you can't ever have sex with someone in that situation. It's like, no, actually, in a way, they might be your safest. (laughs) So just kind of really turns that on your head. I think with all of these, when you're navigating those early days of figuring out if you're going to have sex with someone, talking about sexual health, talking about sexual history, it is that weird thing that someone who's upfront with you, like, I have this ongoing infection, or I had this ongoing infection, or I'm sleeping with someone who has this particular type of STI, and this is how I manage it, or they manage it, or things like that, versus not having that conversation whatsoever with somebody. It is the weird thing that, yeah, you're probably in safer hands with someone who's aware of their own health, and aware of the whole ecosystem that they're interacting with. So not just their bodies, but the bodies of other people that they're sleeping with, who has that in their mind and they're very proactive and mindful about the ways that they deal with that, you're probably just in better hands more likely than someone who doesn't think about those things or doesn't talk about those things or just isn't aware of those things or is too ashamed to talk about them. To care about Mm, them. Yeah, Yeah, all that. No, you do. You do. As it turns out, you do. So now we're going to talk a little bit more about the importance of this knowledge and what we can do to change these conversations within our communities at large to help reduce that stigma and allow people to have more effective, more informed conversations about this kind of stuff. But before we do that, we're going to take a quick break to talk about our sponsors for this show, which really, really go a long way to helping us bring you this information every week for free. So please take a moment, check them out. And we will see you after the break. America, we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity. And the American dream starts with purpose. By honoring your career calling, you impact your family, your friends, and your community. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu. For a long time now, we've been fans of adamandeve.com for getting sex toys or lingerie or accessories, things like that. It's just a fantastic resource with a huge selection. And now, not only do we have a fantastic offer, but we also have a promo code that will work on adammail.com and evestoys.com, which are their site specifically for LGBTQ audiences. And our code is fantastic. It's 50% off of almost any item in the store and free discreet shipping when you use our code MULTI. Yes, we love adamandeve.com and have for years. They are our oldest and longest sponsor, and they just keep on giving great gifts to us and to our listeners. You can bring more pleasure and satisfaction into your bedroom by going to adamandeve.com, adammail.com, or evestoys.com and select any one item. It can be, you know, an adventurous new toy, 
or anything you desire, something fun, something sexy, whatever sounds good. So just enter offer code MULTI at checkout and you'll get 50% off almost any item plus free shipping. That's MULTI, M-U-L-T-I at adamandeve.com, adammail.com or evestoys.com. This is an exclusive offer that is specific to this podcast and it's better than any offer that is currently available on their site. So again, use code MULTI to get you not just the 50% discount, but also the 100% free shipping code M-U-L-T-I. Welcome back, everyone. So as Jace and Dedeker were talking about before the break, something to think about with all of this is that knowledge is power. This is our little reading rainbow segment right here. <laughs> just more after school, the, more. Oh, that's yeah. right. Just yeah. keep on. <laughs> the more you know. Exactly. And knowing is half the battle. That exactly. was the there you go. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Awesome. No, absolutely. I think there's so much stigma out there and so much fear around all of this that just people think to themselves, like, I don't want to know because that's going to be easier for me than going and getting tested, like facing that reality and then making an action plan as to what to do next with my doctor. So just so everyone is aware, and we talked about this multiple times throughout the episode, STIs are super duper normal, much like chicken pox or strep throat or that sinus infection that I had a couple weeks ago. All of that, uh-huh. it happens. Most people will acquire at least one strain of HPV in their lifetime. If you're like me, you had at least two. And 50 to 90% of people carry a strain of herpes. And 1.5 million cases of chlamydia are in the US every single year. So the majority of people with STIs, they don't have symptoms. They can pass it to others. But all STIs are treatable, meaning there is some kind of medical intervention to improve symptoms or possibly keep it under control completely. Yeah, and I want to reiterate that, that all the STIs we talked about are treatable in one way or another. Mm -hmm. So not knowing doesn't help you at all because you're not going to get treated if you don't know. And then most STIs are even curable. And we talked about that a lot as well with antibiotics or antiviral medications or other sorts of topical creams or whatever. A lot of them can be cured completely. And the ones that can't can be treated. So if you don't know you have it, you're not going to get any of that. And it could end up much worse. So it's just so much easier to find out, to just get tested and know. And I know that this is something that I struggled with a lot in the past of like, okay, I know that I need to get tested because I'm told that's what I should do. But I only see downsides when I think about it. Mm. Because it's like, well, I get tested and I find out I have something, then my sex life is over. And I, I guess I get some kind of treatment, but it's just terrible and it's a life sentence and I'm doomed. And I think a lot of people still feel that way about it. It's like, oh, I know I should get tested, but I don't have any reason to want to. And so I hope that what we're able to impress here is the reason why you'd want to is because they all have treatments and a lot of them have cures, but you've got to know before you can get those things. And let's spend a little bit of time talking about testing because I think it is very easy to just say, oh, just go get tested. Easy. It's not always easy and it's not always super accessible. So you should know that there is a standard SDI panel that's given by most clinics. It only includes screening for four SDIs for gonorrhea, chlamydia, syphilis, and HIV. 
because these are the ones that they can be asymptomatic, they can be easily missed. And if they are missed, they can have really serious consequences if they're undetected or if they're untreated. And this is something no one ever, ever told me growing up. It was always this very blanket statement, go get tested for STIs. That's it. Just go get tested. And you go to the doctor and you're like, I want to get tested for STIs. And they're like, great, we'll test you for STIs. And you just think, like, like, all the STIs. Great. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So that's the standard panel. So, of course, anytime you're getting a test, ask what's in it. Ask what you're going to be testing for. Ask if there's particular things that you want to get tested for and make a request of your doctor. So there are some expanded screening tests that may include trichomoniasis, testing for hepatitis B and C. Again, like we said, a lot of doctors won't test you for HSV unless you have an active infection or if you tell them that you know that you just had contact with somebody who has an active infection. If you don't have a compelling reason, you just may have to convince them that you can handle the information A trick that I like to use that may not work for everybody, but has worked for me in the past. If a doctor is turning down a test, I will ask my doctor to make a note of that in my chart that Mm, I asked for the test on this date and they said no. And often that's just convincing enough, especially in the US where so many doctors are just trying to cover their own asses that they'll be like, okay, whatever, fine, sure. Yeah, that's a good strategy too. Just do what you can to keep yourself informed, figure out how the tests are being done what exactly it is, and understanding what the results mean as well. There's, fortunately, in a lot of major U.S. cities, access to free and low-cost testing. Uh, So just do a search online. A bunch of resources will come up. There's, of course, a whole new market of at-home testing that is becoming more and more popular where you can order tests to be sent to your home. Of course, you still want to make sure that if you get a result that's confusing or something that you don't quite understand that you have access to an expert or access to a doctor who can help clarify those things for you. Now, I get asked a lot by listeners of the show and by clients sometimes, what kind of testing schedule do you go on? Hmm. Is it before every single new sex partner? Is it afterwards? What if I don't have sex partners? Is it okay if I go 10 years without getting a test? Things like that. So I generally for myself, I tend to go for testing after new sexual partners. Now, I've not had any new sexual partners in in a while now. So for me, then it (laughs) tends to default to just in case getting a test usually about every six months or so. Some people make a practice out of every three months or so, depending Mm -hmm. on what's going on in their lives. Yeah, and I think ultimately it comes down to a lot of factors. How much of a risk do you think you're at for different ones? You know, how concerned are you? What does your insurance cover or how much access to the tests do you have or what can you afford? You know, there's a lot of factors that go into it. But I do think that that idea of just setting up a regular schedule, whether that's every six months, every three months, just makes a lot of sense because then there's less of this. We've talked about this before, but there can kind of be this weaponizing of STI tests as a way of limiting other non-primary relationships or complicating things. And especially if you're in multi-partner relationships where your sort of network, your kind of web from there is very big. And I think we're a little bit lying to ourselves if we think we can just control it with, uh, well, this person has to get tested before this type of interaction or whatever. And I would actually argue for have everyone in your network, if they're able to get tested every three months, for example, 
might actually be a more sustainable and effective way than closely manage specific test results before sex with certain partners. And it can just get really complicated at scale. That's just my opinion, though. And I know a lot of people have other solutions that work for them. So we discussed this a lot on the show, but sort of undoing personal bias or learned behaviors or internalized fear over a variety of subjects, including this one, it can be challenging. So we're going to get into about how to talk about it, how to discuss these types of things with your potential partners, with partners that you already have, just like out there in the blue in general, how to get less fearful about these types of things, maybe change the narrative about it in your head. So the first one, we've talked about this a lot throughout the entire episode, but fight stigma, do it. So potentially the stigma of STIs actually causes more harm than the actual STI itself does, or at least it can make them more dangerous. It can make them sound more scary at the very least. It makes us not talk about it. That's true. It makes yeah. us not get tested and yeah. can isolate us from support if we have them. It's like yes. overall, the stigma is not helping anyone. No. Maybe some people would think, oh, shaming people is going to keep them from having riskier sex, but it doesn't. <laughs> That's just not how it works. And stigma is only hurting everyone. And also along with stigma, don't make an STI a joke. Like just don't do it. There are other better ways to be funny than talking about somebody's herpes or something. It's just like a shitty thing to do. So don't do it. Okay. We're talking to and you, TV writers. Listen yeah, up. exactly. I know you all listen Freaking to our podcast. Office. Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> do better. Yes. Also, don't use the word clean to refer to a negative test result. I think this still is a thing out there a lot. Like, how do you know that, you know, the person that you're sleeping with is clean or whatever? Like, you you hear people saying things like that. Or you'll see people put, like, tested and clean on their dating profile or something like that. Totally. Saying that word, saying that you're clean of STIs, it, it makes you think about anyone who might be STI positive as dirty. So if somebody has an STI, then all of a sudden they become dirty, which is a shitty thing to think of, a shitty thing to say. And getting sick is a part of life. It, it is. Like, we all get sick. Like I said, I had a really shitty cold a couple weeks ago, and it happens. It sucks, but it does. It happens. We have colds, chicken pox, rashes, flus, other infections. They don't make us unclean. And there's no STI panel out there that tests for absolutely everything. So it's literally impossible to know whether or not you have an STI or not at any given time. So also share your negative status when it's appropriate, maybe with a potential partner. Maybe don't like flaunt it all over the place on your dating profile. It's not a freaking status symbol. Okay. If you see that out there, like, I have a negative status on somebody's dating profile. It might make somebody who looks at your dating profile less likely to trust you because it signals that you probably don't even really understand STIs, understand how they work, understand all of the things that we discussed today. 100%. If I ever see someone use the word clean or like STI free or something like that, I'm just like, oof, this is a dangerous, risky person because they don't get it. They don't actually know how this works. And And they're perpetuating that stigma. They're perpetuating the stigma, which makes me sad. And then also, I would bet that someone who talks that way and thinks that way is also going to then be less aware of safer sex, less 
careful, less informed. They're just sort of perpetuating this kind of misinformation. And so while they might think it makes them a more attractive partner, I would actually argue it makes them less attractive. So if you mm-hmm. have that on your dating profile, Take don't worry, you didn't know till you listened to this episode, but just go right now and just, <laughs> just delete that. Just get rid of it. It's relevant yeah. when it's relevant and not before that. Another thing that we wanted to talk about is sometimes when people talk about sexual health, they assume that being sexually healthy means not having infection. And that's not the case. Sexual health is not just an absence of infection. It refers to this whole host of things, which includes mental health around sex, awareness and access to treatment and testing for STIs, not the absence of them, but awareness and access to treatment for them, freedom from coercion and stigma when it comes to your sexual identity and your sexual activity, access to sexual health care, pregnancy care, birth control, all those sorts of things. That sexual health is this much bigger thing than just that. So be sure that you're aware of that when you're having those conversations. And another thing that can come up is just don't assume anyone else's STI status. And Emily, you know, again, we kind of mentioned this earlier with the writers of The Office, not realizing that probably people in their writer's room, even of 10 people, probably 60% of those have Mm -hmm. one or the other strain of herpes. One really good principle to keep in mind is just always assume anytime with anybody that you're talking with that someone with an STI is listening. Because based on the stats we've talked about today, they probably are. And if they are, and you make a joke or say something disparaging about it, they will never tell you that fact. And you will never know that you hurt this person, made Mm -hmm. them feel uncomfortable, maybe lost a friend, maybe lost a business relationship, maybe had a worse relationship with a coworker. All these things that could have happened just because you assumed, oh, well, anyone who works here or who I'm friends with must not have any STIs. Because just, it's not the case. There are some studies that have shown that most people assume that a polyamorous person or consensually non-monogamous person is going to have more STIs. And the reality is that on average, this community tends to have a lower rate of STI transmission despite having equal or more sexual partners compared to the average monogamous person. And this is attributed entirely to the fact that they're more likely to be informed, talk more openly about their sexual health practices, and also more likely to practice safer sex. Of course, these are traits that are not exclusive to non-monogamous people. These are traits that can be adopted by anyone. But I do think that is a little bit part of the quote-unquote polyamory PR work that often has to be done is that everyone assumes that we're just a bunch of sex-addicted maniacs just going fast and loose with our genitals everywhere. We don't walk our dogs. We don't take our vitamins. Fast and loose genitals. We we don't get our taxes (laughs) Waving them around. (laughs) When the reality is, is that this is a group of people who are more likely to be clued into healthy ways of talking about these things and ideally even more accepting. I know, just to speak anecdotally from my personal experience, And especially seeing the conversations that take place, for instance, in our own Patreon community, so many people who are just really well-informed about the science, about the facts, very compassionate, very non-judgmental, and also very intelligent and creative when it comes to, you know, managing and communicating, talking about sexual health and talking about STI status and things like that. So, we're the best, is just what I'm saying. (laughs) Yeah, I'm toads. (laughs) Um, Long story short. Yeah. We're great. Yeah. 
Last but not least, share this information and share information like this. Really, the only cure for SDI stigma is education and increasing the number of people in the world who even bother to learn about this stuff and talk about STIs in a matter-of-fact way. And so what that looks like is it could be you talking openly with a close friend about your own STI status, whatever that may be, and talking about it in a very matter-of-fact way or even just talking about getting tested in a very matter-of-fact way. Or it could be calling someone out who just made a herpes joke. (laughs) You know, something like that. There are very, very, in my opinion, easy, accessible, day-to-day approaches that we can take to help reduce stigma. And just this episode, I think, is also a good gateway for that. If you don't trust this friend to not Hmm. try to shame you in front of other people, or you feel like that's too much of a risk or too scary... You could also bring it up in a much more neutral way about like, oh my gosh, I just listened to the most interesting episode of this amazing podcast with three super cool hosts. Yeah. Where they they talked about all this information. I had no idea. This was so cool. You should check it out. Or maybe just tell them some of the information or whatever, just to sort of start getting more of that matter-of-fact information out there. But you can do it even in a way that doesn't put yourself at any risk of social fallout or something like that. This is the end of part one of this two-part series. In part two, we're going to be talking about different ways of practicing safer sex, what some of those options are, how those work. And then we're going to get into some examples of how to actually have those conversations. It can be hard and awkward to actually have that conversation. So we're going to go over some ways to actually do that, how to make those conversations easier, as well as looking at some possible scenarios of how you might decide to manage your amount of risk in terms of your sex life. For our bonus for this week, we're going to be talking about talking to your doctor about STI testing. We're going to get into some more specifics about that, like we mentioned in the episode today. And we want to hear from you. What is the most important thing that you have learned about STIs and STDs? It could have been something in this episode. Maybe it's something you learned before. But we're interested to hear that. And we're posting that question on our Instagram stories. So go there to check that out. Also, if you want to talk about this episode some more, the best place to share your thoughts with other listeners is on this episode's discussion thread in our private Facebook group or Discord chat. You can get access to these groups and join our exclusive community by going to patreon.com slash multiamory. In addition, you can share publicly on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Multiamory is created and produced by Emily Matlack, Dedeker Winston, and me, Jace Lindgren. Our episodes are edited by Mauricio Balvanera. Our research for this episode was by M. Mays. Our social media wizard is Will McMillan. Our production assistants are Rachel Shenowark and Carson Collins. Our theme song is Forms I Know I Did by Josh and Anand from the Fractal Cave EP. The full transcript is available on this episode's page on multiamory.com. <laughs>